This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Thoughts and conversations are dominated by COVID-19. And they're going to be for a while. But we can't lose sight of certain things. A couple of nights ago, you know what it was? Houston, we have a problem. Although that wasn't really the words that were said by the Apollo crew. But we didn't really even notice that. Things are going by and and you're not noticing it. It's like in old school where Will Ferrell's character forgets his birthday. Things blend together. So we want to make sure that we are recognizing things in our world that need to be recognized. And normally, Jackie Robinson Day, very easy day to do it. It was on April 15th, 1947, which was opening day in 1947, that Jackie Robinson became the first player of color to play in Major League Baseball. And we recognize that each and every year because umpires and players and managers, anybody involved in Major League Baseball, wears the number 42. And it usually makes for some unique highlight packages at the end of the day. We don't have that now because we don't have Major League Baseball. But we can still talk about the significance of this event so that we don't just let it tumble by. Joining us right now is the Executive Director of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, Mr. Scott Crawford. Scott, how you doing? Oh, Scott, we'll get you in just a second. But we are looking at a day that Major League Baseball honors. And that day is one that now is a long way in the past. And it's one of those stories that you have to tell because there are going to be a lot of baseball fans right now who cannot appreciate this. Raise your hand if you witnessed opening day of 1947. Yeah, there are people who've done it. I see some hands, but I see some people not raising their hands. And that's why we want to talk about it. Scott, how are things going in St. Mary's? Well, it's uh, the, the ball fields are full of green grass, and uh, but uh, no one's playing on them. But still, we can celebrate baseball for sure today. Let's do that. And you know what? The ball fields are still there, and they'll wait for us, won't they? Ball fields are good at doing that. They, they are. They just sit there in the beautifulness of them all and, and just wait for the kids to come back. Let's look back at, at the significance of this day. How do you put that into words? It's hard to. I mean, you just think you think now, like, wow, you know, how how could you know how did that happen, and why did it happen, and and what now? Because things have changed so much today. And but uh, it was the way the way of the world back in the forties in uh, in America, and it's just one of those things that you know it's it's really a good thing it happened because it not only changed baseball but changed culture in general. If we look at how good a player Jackie Robinson was, I mean, here's someone who is a member of Baseball's Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 1962, but just how good he was, what are some of the things we need to know about Jackie Robinson? Well, he he played through a lot. I mean, he played 10 years in the big leagues. He he wasn't in the big leagues until he's 28 years old, and, and that's almost, you know, getting old for your rookie season and uh but he went on and you know he won mvp he won rookie of the year he won world series and he hit 300 and stole a lot of bases so that's one unique thing about him is he wasn't just a one tool player he could he could hit some home runs he could play defense and he could steal bases we're talking with Scott Crawford, Executive Director of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, and you just named off a whole lot of tools, and then he would go on to manage. But all this time, when he first got in, 
he had to be the one that broke a lot of stigmas. That can't have been easy. No, you look at what he had to go through. I mean, you see the movie that came out a couple of years ago, 42, and and uh, what he went through with some of the other white players and, and even his own teammates that weren't sure about him. They didn't want to play on the same field as him. They they threatened to quit or be, wanted to be traded. And and uh, it's just it's just what happened back then, and it's, it's sad to read about it and see about it, and you're just so happy that it's... Uh, it's changed a lot of the world and a lot of people today. And this is always such a unique day with everybody wearing 42. I'm missing that aspect of this day, aren't you? I am. It's so unique. I mean, it started with just, you know, Ken Griffey Jr.'s talk of doing it, and then it went to other players, and then, then it went to everyone. On Every team was wearing 42, and it was uh, it was so unique to see. And, you know, what, one of the famous lines in the movie that was said, about Jackie was, you know, and I think it was Pete Lee Reese said, you know, one one day no one will make no one will notice a difference one day, and uh, and that's so so true with everyone wearing number forty two. Absolutely, Scott. Before we let you go, things without baseball are tough for baseball fans. But in terms of what you are looking at and how you move forward with events that you've had planned at the Hall of Fame, how are you dealing with that? Well, we've uh, we've postponed our, our biggest event of the year. It's our June 2020 induction ceremony. Uh, we're, we're hoping to, uh, you know, we'll postpone it to a future date. Um, the board hasn't announced a date for that yet, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll look at how things go over the next few months. And, and also the museum's closed and the ball field's closed until further notice. So it's, it's pretty quiet up here. Um, I'm still in the office doing work. There's lots of uh, artifacts to, to curate and, and go through and, and uh, keeping keeping us busy, that's for sure. Well, that's good. And you did mention postponement of the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. The idea is to still have a ceremony at some point? That's our goal. Again, we got to see how the, the world, uh, the number one thing, obviously, the world getting healthy and first, and then baseball will be back, and, and we just sort of got to watch how things happen over the next few months and, and make a final decision at some point. Scott, be safe. Thanks so much for the time. Keep curating those artifacts because one day we're all going to want to come for another tour and uh, we'll be able to see the new stuff then. I sure will. I can't wait to uh, get baseball back and have the kids running around first base and, and having fun. Can't wait. Scott, thanks for helping us to remember Jackie Robinson and what his legacy still means today. No problem. It's a great to always talk baseball with you, Mike. I love it. A month and a half ago, we were able to speak with Dr. Michael Curry, clinical assistant professor with the University of British Columbia. He clinically practices in the emergency department at Delta Hospital, and we welcome him back to London Live. Dr. Curry, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. You had looked at this and had, you know, as much as you had a realistic spin and thought on what could play out you also looked at Canada and believed if we were going to be somewhere, then, then Canada's an okay place to be given the healthcare system that we have. Now that you've been watching this play out and been experiencing this firsthand, how are you seeing the pandemic develop in this country? Well, fortunately, Mike, I, I think it's actually going better than a lot of our concerns were that it was what it was going to be about a month, a month and a half ago or so. So we heard a lot about uh, the experience that we had with SARS back in 2003 and having prepared us for this pandemic. But uh, I think the lesson we've learned from here is that we didn't learn our lessons as well as we should have the first time. Uh, we got a bit lucky with SARS. Um, I was in Toronto when it hit. 
Toronto was hit hard, but outside the Toronto area, Canada didn't have thousands of cases of SARS. We had a fairly localized outbreak in one city. This is affecting all of Canada. There's even been a case up in Nunavut at this point. Uh, and the numbers are the things that we're not prepared for. Um, you know, when we're talking about 30% of the population being affected, you know, that's 8, 9 million people. That's something we're not really equipped to have. And we're seeing that with, you know, the potentials for PPE shortages and whatnot. That being said, I think the social distancing has had a dramatic effect. This is not following the trajectory that we've seen in countries like Italy or parts of the United States. And uh, I think we're doing reasonably well right now. But the areas we need to look on are long-term care facilities and uh, institutions like uh, prisons and jails. I think those are uh, what we're going to be seeing a lot of outbreaks in over the next month or so. And we just had information coming from our own province about that very thing and some new strategies to deal with long-term care facilities. And certainly prisons and detention centers have come up in a lot of conversations because what if, and we have seen it in the United States. I think there was a case in Virginia today where someone was diagnosed with COVID-19. When it comes to the social distancing and, and things like that, is that something that even came up during SARS? Is that... Was that a topic of conversation that, hey, if this does something, this is what we're going to have to do? Or or is this kind of a, a new idea? No, it's it's a new, well, it's, a, it's an old idea that's making its first reappearance in the last hundred years or so. So social distancing, you know, this is, uh, this is you know, something that we did during uh, the Middle Ages, during the Black Death. Uh, the last time, though, that it's really been instituted was the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And uh, I think that's where we're getting our plays from here. As, as you mentioned, you know, in SARS, this was something that wasn't on the radar. We were able to keep it to, you know, largely just the city of Toronto or metropolitan Toronto, uh, where we were having the outbreak. But the social distancing, you know, we're going back to our 1918 playbook to come up with these sort of ideas. We're talking right now with Dr. Michael Curry, and Dr. Curry is a clinical assistant professor with the University of British Columbia, and he practices in the emergency department at the Delta Hospital. With SARS, I mean, to go back there, could it have, if the outbreak had not been contained somehow, or maybe if we didn't become as lucky as we were, could it have been a whole lot worse in your estimation? Well, I think there's two things with SARS. So the first is, it may have been worse than we appreciate. We didn't have a test for SARS until months after the outbreak began. So it was a clinical diagnosis. And part of the problem that we encountered in Toronto is that we could only diagnose SARS if you had a known contact with a person with SARS. So the second outbreak uh, the one centered at North York General, was a second outbreak, and physicians were sounding the alarm, but it was being overlooked because there wasn't a known link to the other outbreaks. So it was pure contact tracing. We didn't have a test to diagnose it, and there's speculation that there was more SARS than we know about in North America. The second point is with SARS is it was actually probably too deadly. It made people too sick, and with the infectiousness of SARS peaked as you were sicker. So the people that were best able to transmit SARS were the very sick people in the hospital. But those people don't spread illness as well. COVID is sort of the other way around. 
We know that there are asymptomatic individuals spreading it, and we know people are spreading it early in their infection phase when they have mild symptoms and might still be around spreading it. That sort of illness spreads a lot more quickly than an illness that makes you very sick. What are we learning about the spread, Dr. Curry, and the way that it is done? Because every once in a while you'll you'll see, well, there are rare symptoms like conjunctivitis or there are other symptoms, and that suggests that, you know, maybe eyes or what have you. What do we know about the way that it is spread from person to person that maybe we, we didn't have a great handle on before? And I'm, I'm not sure we have a great handle on it yet. There's... Um... There's a lot of uh, discrepant literature on the asymptomatic rate. Um, You know, I think one of our best places of information is looking at the population-wide screening that they're doing in Iceland. It's a small place, but it's a small place with lots of money. So they've been able to do a fair bit of testing there. And their numbers are suggesting somewhere around 50% of patients with COVID-19 have no symptoms. There's other studies that put it higher. There's other studies that put it lower. But uh, the asymptomatic individuals spreading it, that's a bit of a game changer. And that's why we have this entire controversy about wearing masks. Um, The wearing masks have not ever been shown to protect people from getting it. But what they may do is protect asymptomatic people from going out in the community and spreading it to other people. So now that we know that people can spread it without knowing that they have it, then the mask may all of a sudden be useful because our old thinking was that if you were sick, just stay home, don't don't wear a mask, stay home and don't spread it. The problem is you might not know that you're sick. How rare is that? I mean, it's uh, for people like us who don't necessarily look at viruses and pay too much attention unless, you know, the, the kids need a vaccine or unless something pops up here and there. But how rare is it for something that can actually cost someone their life to appear in others as, you know, no symptoms, asymptomatic? Um, it's relatively it's relatively rare. We do know that there were carriers of illnesses. The most famous one would be typhoid Mary at the turn of the century, that she had a chronic case of typhoid. This was before antibiotics, so we couldn't treat her. And basically she kept working. She was a chef. That was her that was her training. And so she kept working as a cook and kept spreading typhoid and killing people that uh, brought her food. And so that's the typhoid Mary example. I don't know if we have a if we have a COVID Corey out there that's a similar similar type story, but the possibilities out there. Yeah, and no doubt that story, if it is out there, will come to the surface at some point. Dr. Curry, be well. I I hope that things are going okay where you are and certainly in the emergency department at Delta Hospital. Yeah, thank you very much, and I hope things go well for you guys down in London. Stay safe. Thank you. That is Dr. Michael Curry, clinical assistant professor with the University of British Columbia, who also practices in the emergency department at Delta Hospital in Delta, British Columbia. And that right there is why we can't relax right now. Because if you look at the study that Dr. Curry pointed to that Iceland is going through right now, that 50% of patients are asymptomatic just because they're testing everybody. And that's what you want to be able to do. I mean, there's been talk in the United States that, hey, they need to do 150 million tests a week. 
Well, that's a lot, and right now they're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near where we need to be. But if you could wake up in the morning and, you know, like we've talked about before, see a green square on your arm and say, ooh, yeah, that means that I have this, you wouldn't go outside. You wouldn't risk infecting anybody, but it's not like that. In fact, it's something that can be asymptomatic. You have no idea. And you may go through the entire run of the virus, it looks like. I mean, there's, you know, do we call it evidence right now? Cases? We have cases? Case examples like that? You might fall into one of many categories right now. And none of them seem all that fun. Whether it is laid off, hours reduced, trips canceled... Let's focus in on that third one for a second, because you may have had a trip planned and you've been told, yeah, that flight isn't happening anymore because this particular airline has been grounded or that flight is no longer taking place. Here's a voucher and you're able to make use of airfare, same value between now and this date. A lot of people have gone through that. Let's talk a little bit more about that and and what that is meaning. Because we are joined right now by John Karenik, who is an adjunct professor, operations and logistics division in the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. John, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure being here, Mike. Let's kind of go through, even before we get to vouchers and refunds and that topic, just the airline industry and how it's kind of coping with this well, it's uh, it's tough. It's certainly uh, an understatement is that it's unprecedented. I think, you know, uh, probably a good example would be, you know, at the beginning of my uh, semester back in January, you know, I was talking to my students uh, in, in the transportation course how this industry um, has been in about a 10-year upward spiral in terms of revenue, growth, profitability. It really, in many ways, unprecedented. And that's what we were looking at in January. Now it's April, and this is probably one of the most difficult times, I believe, in the uh, aviation industry uh, period. So um, I, I'm finding it, it's, it's two things uh, from what I'm seeing. Um, one is it's very, it's the unprecedented nature, the, the cutbacks uh, on the industry worldwide. It isn't just a regional, you know, just a, a Europe or just a China or just a Canada. It's a worldwide uh, issue now as well. And I think the biggest problem is the uncertainty of how long is this going to last. And, and, I, and that really drives a lot of decisions that airlines are making, and, and airports as well uh, are being just as hard hit as, uh, in addition to the airlines. So I, I think it's just how rapidly this has changed and the uncertainty going forward. You know, how long before this treatment? Will this die off a little bit? When will there be a vaccine? Um, what, how is the industry and the uh, society going to open up again slowly? And there's all that talk right now. But my view, uh, I think it's just the uncertainty that we're facing right now. Professor Karenik, we have had some airlines, Porter for one, that has grounded flights, so there aren't flights. If you look, you can find that there are aircraft in the air. Do we know kind of who has made the decision on, okay, this one can go, but this one can't, and and how that's happening? Is that clear at all? 
Yeah, it's it's driven by by a couple of things. Uh, one is any uh, government restrictions, uh, and therefore, what we're seeing the greatest hit has been on the international side. Uh, for example, Singapore Airlines. Uh, I believe they're not operating, or it's minimal if they are. Qantas isn't operating any international flights. Uh, Air Canada's pulled back significantly on international services. Um, so there's, there's a number, in the case of Canada, you know, it's not just Porter, it's uh, Sunwing and Air Transat, to my understanding, aren't operating until, I think they've cancelled everything till about the end of May, the first week of June, in that, in that range as well. Uh, this morning, um, Southwest Airlines in the States, which is one of the biggest domestic airlines in the U.S., has extend, has cut their June capacity by 50%. So they're starting to push that out uh, a little bit to a later date. So 50% of their capacity has been pulled out. John Karanik joining us, adjunct professor, operations and logistics division in the Sauter School of Business at UBC. Let's get to people, Professor Karanik, who had tickets and have either been told that flight's not happening or... They're still in limbo right now, and one of the solutions from a lot of the airlines has been, okay, well, here's a voucher for a future flight when people are saying, well, shouldn't I just get a refund? Can you help us to understand the situation between vouchers versus refunds? Yeah, very clear. Uh, the My understanding was that, um, in principle, you know, I have an issue with any company that uh, doesn't provide a refund when they decide not to provide a product or a service. In the case of an airline, a service. They said, you know, you bought a ticket, you had a contract with them to operate, uh, take a flight to, uh, let's say, the Dominican Republic or something like that. And they cancel it, in, in my view, uh, whether it's an airline or another, you know, company or product, they, there should be a refund. Uh, I believe the EU has uh, stipulated that for uh, EU carriers. Um, and I believe that's the same also with the U.S., although I'm not that clear on that, and I've been trying to see what some other countries have been doing. Um, but I think there should be a full refund. If the consumer cancels it because they're nervous of the pandemic or something like that, I think that's, that's a different story. And I think at that point, um, uh, a voucher for two years would be, would be fine. Um, I had a similar situation where I had a flight to Europe that I canceled, uh, back in about the 12th of March, and I think I got under the wire and I managed to get a refund with a bit of a penalty. That was fine. I found that acceptable because I made the decision to cancel at that time. Um, now, what I'm understanding is that the CTH Canadian Transportation Agency is standing firm on this and is siding with the airlines and saying that uh, this is reasonable to provide a voucher. Um, I know there's a number of groups like the Air Passenger Rights Group is challenging this in federal court, as uh, at least they've indicated that. Uh, there's also talk about a class action suit as well. I can see it from the airline side. Uh, they're in a real cash crunch or liquidity crunch. And, um, you know, when I, I looked at uh, some numbers worldwide, just for this quarter, worldwide, refunds and credits will likely be in the order of $35 billion. So you can see why it would be very important for the carriers, the WestJets, the Air Canada's, and so on, uh, and their transats, to uh, be able to retain that money. Do I think it's right? No, because uh, as a consumer, I think 
I'm a, you did not provide me a service. I don't know if I want that voucher two years ago. There's been some groups that have been involved with uh, wedding parties and, you know, large groups like that. Who knows if that's even going to happen in the future? Plans will change. So from my perspective, I, I think it's unfortunate the direction this appears to be going, but we'll see what, what the outcome is. We're talking right now with John Karenik, who is an adjunct professor, operations and logistics division at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. And we're talking about airline travel. And I guess as we do the math, you could think, okay, worldwide, yeah, the, the number of refunded flights in the way of vouchers could total a lot of money. $35 billion. That is an immense amount of money. Now, in terms of the airlines themselves, Professor Krenick, you were talking about this industry being in such great shape, producing such amazing revenues. Is there a chance that we look around and some of these operators would be able to say, okay, well, if we're back by this date, that's okay. If we're not back by a certain date, I don't know that that they wouldn't be able to operate anymore? I think in some cases that could be the case, especially those that have a a weak cash position or a high debt load. Um, I I looked at those one survey uh, undertaken by a number of uh, airline individuals, and they were kind of looking down down the future, and they were saying about a quarter of them uh, indicated that they would be they would see some sort of a bounce back this year. Uh, about a half says it won't be until next year, and then about a quarter have indicated it won't be until after twenty twenty one or twenty two. Um, the issue here is going to be what is the recovery, and and I think there's a number of other things that could happen. We're all very much focused on today and the next month or so and the social distancing, and rightfully so. We we need to be. Um, But what's going to happen once the industry, uh, whether we get a vaccine or more effective treatment or something like that, what happens when the industry does come back? Uh, You know, most countries are inheriting a huge debt load um, because of what's happening today. Uh, there's um, even talk of a recession in the U.S., uh, or even some economists go to the extreme and say depression. So, there's current, so will there be disposable income from the consumer who's been out of a job for a number of months, got you know, uh, um, some support from the government? But how likely are they going to be traveling, even if the environment's right from a, from a pandemic perspective? What's the likelihood of them traveling in the next year or so? on vacation. And, and I think that could be, that's one of the, those kind of silent things that we haven't thought about down the road because we're dealing with today. But I think that could have a real uh, impact on the airlines. And the airlines, unlike SARS and some other events where it was more of a V recovery, you know, it, it hit bottom and then quickly recovered, this can be more of what's called a U-shape recovery. It'll take longer to recover over time. So, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you please continue. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, I, I think, a concern that I would have with respect to the industry uh, down the road and what impact would that have on some airlines. Well, we will just have to wait and see in all of this, but Professor Karenik, we really appreciate your insight in this. Thank you so much for the information. Okay, my pleasure, and I wish everybody well in, in London. Thank you. We wish the same of everybody in B.C. Stay safe. Okay, same to you. Bye-bye. That is John Karenik, Adjunct Professor, Operations and Logistics Division in the Sauter School of Business at UBC. So 
right now, if you have a voucher in your hands, <laughs> those who help to make the decisions on what's right and what's wrong are saying, yeah, that's okay. That's okay to do that, and it may have something to do with the worldwide $35 billion tied up in things like that, where the airlines just can't say collectively, yeah, $35 billion? Uh, yeah, uh, do you want that in 20s, 100s? They're not going to do that right now because that, that could be even more detrimental to them. So this is the way that it is. If you have a voucher, you'll have a date on it, and if that date comes and goes, I'm sure they'll put another date on it. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.